them down, Lord Jesus. Welcome back to Black Girl Watching, where we break down your favorite films and TV shows. I'm Brooke Obie, film critic, writer, editor, TV film expert, screenwriter, etc., etc. And I'm Brittany Danielle, a writer, editor, and cultural critic who loves reading and watching Black art. Once again, today we are super excited to talk about the latest episode of Lovecraft Country. We are here to discuss episode three, Holy Ghost. So if you want to join in on our conversation, please always use the hashtag Black Girl Watching on Twitter. And you can also tweet us at Black Girl Watching, B-L-K-G-R-L Watching to share your thoughts, ask your questions, all that. You can also shoot us an email at blackgirlwatching at gmail.com if you have questions, suggestions, thoughts you want us to maybe dive into on the podcast. Um, And before we get started, once again, please know that this podcast is full of spoilers. So if you have not watched episode three yet, put a pause on this podcast, go back, watch episode three, um, and then come back to, to listen and enjoy and hopefully engage with us. Yes, absolutely. So we also, y'all need to stay tuned because we have a very special guest again on today's episode. Um, as we're talking about the impact of religion uh, and spirituality and its role in Black liberation, we're going to talk about some of the ways that it has hindered Black liberation with our very special guest, Tony Goldwyn, so stay tuned for that. So let's let's get into it. Uh, episode three, Holy Ghost. What were your first reactions? My first reaction was like, oh my God, this is intense. This is the first episode for me that felt like a traditional horror movie or a horror show. Um, I know that, you know, episode one, we were exposed to the Shagaths and those big snarling monsters that popped out of the ground. And that was like a shock, but that felt to me more like sci-fi and all of the other um, things that happened in the episode was, were dramatic and suspenseful. This is the first one where I felt like they leaned very deeply into horror where you have the dead bodies popping up. You have literal ghosts, um, you know, doing poltergeisty type things. Um, you have this, it, it leans all the way into all of the kind of traditional trappings of a horror film, um, dead bodies, spooky music, strange things are happening. People are feeling creeped out and they don't know why, but the audience knows why sort of. And uh, this is the, the first episode I was genuinely scared in a different way. You know, I was, I've always been scared by the racists, um, that our protagonists have encountered, whether it was a racist sheriff or, the racism they experienced in Artem, but this is the first time where I was like, holy shit, this is a horror movie. And it, you know, has the traditional jump scares as well. Um, it's a haunted house. I mean, that's what we're dealing with. Letty has purchased a haunted house and, and there are, you know, ghosts that are 
uh, unsatisfied souls that cannot move over to the next uh, life because they have unfinished business um, for both um, good and evil. Um, but my first reaction to this, honestly, I've now seen this episode probably three or four times. Um, each time I bawled my eyes out. I just completely bawled my eyes out mm-hmm. each time. Um, I think it's uh, especially poignant this time watching it with the loss of, of Chadwick Boseman um, and Black Panther right. um, being such an iconic symbol to Black people. So for him... Um, to tragically pass away from cancer uh, so unexpectedly and, you know, to be in the midst of Black uprisings around the world um, Mm -hmm. in response to police brutality and the murder and terror of Black people in this country. It just felt like we are losing and like, does God hate us? Like, that's something that I've been wrestling with all week. Um, It's just been very, very disturbing. White people have magic on their side on top of everything else. And what this episode really shows is that Black people have magic on their side too. And so for this episode um, to be so um, heavily influenced um, by spirituality and and using spirituality as a form of Black liberation to overcome so many of the evils that we're facing, um, it really just made me break down once again um, and showed that, you know, that there is still some hope that we have power and that, you know, God is not against us. It's evidence that we have a great many different forms of evil, uh, principalities of the dark, uh, and that's uh, spiritual as well as physical that we have to fight, um, but that there is power in community um, and that there is power mm-hmm. in our faith. Throughout our experience, our ancestral religions have always found a way to coexist and live alongside, um, you know, our new world religion, I guess you could say, like our indoctrinated Christianity, Um, whether that's through voodoo, whether that's through Santeria, whether that's through Native people kind of masking Orishas through, you know, categorizing them or kind of pairing them up with other, quote, Christian saints. Like we've always found a way to honor our traditions and those traditions have continued to carry us. Um, but I, I'm curious, like, was it the whole episode that just like the heaviness of where we are in our modern day world um, paired with this episode that had you crying? Or were there specific points that were um, more emotional than others for you? So I feel like each time that I've watched this episode, it's been in this context of the pandemic that is uh, largely killing Black people um, due to medical and social racism that we face, um, as well as the police brutality that continues to, um, these police continuing to murder us um, and murder allies of us throughout the entire pandemic. Um, and then, you know, lastly with, with Chad McBoseman dying, um, mm-hmm. it, it just, it, it was especially heavy um, to see Atticus be um, 
possessed uh, right. by this by this demon. It just feels like when we do not have unity, um, when we do not have our seal of protection, which I I think you know the seal of protection is unity within our community. Um, mm-hmm. You are vulnerable to these kinds of things. So just seeing that, like, it's not just uh, white supremacists who are our enemies. It's not just the police. We also have people in every level of government who are working to make this system work. We had Barack Obama tell LeBron James and the members of um, the National Basketball Players Association to end the strike at the point of their power. Um, And he convinced them to end the strike and go back to work and, and, and get back to dribbling that ball for massa. Like I, it's just, we have so many different enemies and some of our enemies look like us. I mean, and when I say enemies, I mean enemies to black liberation, um, enemies to uh, our freedom. And I don't think that's anything new, clearly, even in enslavement, even during revolt, you, you always have somebody who's like snitching and breaking up the revolt or just so scared about the alternative. And a lot of people don't have an imagination to realize um, what could be possible because they're so concerned or so invested in just surviving what actually is. And so there's always been those people. Well, just to finish on that point, the thing that was the most emotional for me was to have Letty um, calling all of these spirits together, holding their hands and in community, chanting in unison, um, they were defeating this evil that was that had done evil to all of them. Um, and that gave me a sense of hope that I have not been feeling in this very unhopeful time. And mm-hmm. I think that was what was causing me to ball. I, I'm sorry. Before that, I just want to say they were defeating a literal white devil, which I found so satisfying. <laughs> like... You know, that that phrase has been around if you ever, you know, read Malcolm X or you listen to anybody who's, you know, more on the militant side. You might always hear about white devils. But in this episode of Lovecraft, Letty and these spirits who were killed by this terrible man literally defeated a white devil. And I was ecstatic about it. But let's get to the recap of the episode. Yes. So we have, it starts off with Letty in church. Um, and we see that what she says later on to Tick, that she's going to church. She's trying to feel something. She's been killed in the second episode and brought back to life. And she's saying she's been feeling like a ghost ever since. And so she's trying to do things to feel something. So you see her in church and they are having this Pentecostal experience. They are shouting, they're speaking in tongues, um, but she is sitting still and she is silent. And there's a single tear that's going down her cheek that to me kind of symbolizes her disconnect and her dismay at being disconnected from this this feeling. She is not having this, you know, exuberant feeling that um, her fellow congregants in church are having. But what's really interesting about this scene is that there's no um, gospel music or anything like that that's scoring this particular scene. Letty is 
sitting there in silence and the congregants who are shouting are muted as well. And there is uh, this poem that's kind of narrating the scene. Um, and it's by Precious Angel Ramirez. And it was originally used in a 2017 Nike ad that was about transgender Vogue artist, Laomi Maldonado. Letty is on the outside of this experience, just like trans people and queer people have been excluded from being who they are within the church context. So I think this is another brilliant nod to show the ways in which Christianity and organized religion um, can be harmful in the pursuit of Black liberation. And it's just so fascinating that this, this poem um, that Precious is reciting here, she's asking, you know, Letty, what, what, is she, what is she going to do with her power? And that's pretty mm -hmm. much what this entire episode is about. I'm glad you cleared that up because I definitely had a question about who was speaking. Those of us who grew up in the Black church, um, a lot of people talk about feeling convicted. And this is a moment where Letty feels convicted. And then she gets money <laughs> out of nowhere. But she uses this money and, and her conviction to want to do something with the world and want to feel something, which she tells Tick later on, to help others. So she buys this house. Um, she fills it with Black artists. And she's trying to also make a little bit of a point, like Black people belong everywhere. Absolutely. One of the other things that we didn't point out was right in the beginning, uh, right before Ruby and Letty go into this house, there is a title card that's letting us know that we are in 1955, it's summertime, and that there are three people who go missing inside of a house 10 days after a group of Black people pioneered into Chicago's North Side. So that is kind of the setup uh, for what's going to be happening over the episode. The episode takes place over this 10-day period. After that opening, Letty informs Ruby that she has bought this old decrepit house on the north side of Chicago in an all-white neighborhood. Ruby is admittedly and understandably suspicious. And I love how the show just kind of slips in information for people who may not be aware Black people couldn't just move to any neighborhood they wanted to move in, even in the North. There's redlining, there's discrimination, there are riots, which uh, which Ruby says happened after a Black couple moved into an all-white building. So Ruby is admittedly and understandably um, nervous about Letty purchasing this home in an all-white neighborhood, but Letty is determined to make it work she's determined to to make a safe space for black people and she says strength in numbers which kind of goes back to your earlier point about community being the protective force you know when we're confronting things like racism and um misogynoir or sexism or any ism like community can be a very powerful and very strong protective barrier um in those times. And the other thing is we see more of Letty and Ruby's relationship. We know that it's contentious um, a little bit, um, that there is some underlying history there, um, that there is that colorism has played a role in the way that both of them have lived their lives with Letty being extremely fair and Ruby being on the complete opposite spectrum, um, darker skinned woman. 
Um, and Ruby has this idea of, you know, who she wants to be. She wants to work at Marshall Fields, this fancy uh, department store that she keeps applying to and keeps getting rejected from. Um, and she's not able to do that, but she says this thing that's just really, really fascinating. It's a, it's a way a lot of um, people actually think, a lot of Black people um, think this way. Um, but Ruby's saying that if more people thought like her, that if they were really willing to work very hard, then, you know, Black people would be further along in America. Um, so it's a little bit of kind of like, yeah. Blaming the victim and also kind of trying to take back a bit of power that white supremacy has taken away by saying that, like, there is a way that I can uh, negotiate my blackness. I can work mm -hmm. my way out of being oppressed, but because of my skin color, um, if I go to school, if I um, get a fancy job, you know, all of these things um, and keep trying right. really hard. It's bootstrap theology, right? It's respectability politics. Like if you would just work harder, if you would just educate yourself more, if you would just get really rich, then you would have to be immune to these issues that, you know, uneducated um, people who are so socially, economically depressed, they won't have to have those issues. But I think you know, throughout our experience in America, this has been disproven, right? So the civil rights movement being led by, and I like how they slip in, oh, there's a new preacher trying, <laughs> trying to do some things. His name is Michael, but they call him Martin. Um, but a, a great segment of those people like Martin Luther King and others had gone to college. They were, quote, respectable. They did wear, wear suits to marches. You know, they have those memes today like, oh, this is a real march. And people still didn't accept them. Um, and I think it just speaks to the absurdity of trying to fit in in an America that doesn't want you. Nicole Hannah-Jones tweeted, like, being black in America is the trap, right? So whether you're respectable or not, or not, quote, respectable, you're still subject to these same things. People are still looking at you to have solutions to a system that you didn't create and that you were a victim of. And so I think we see that in the relationship, too, in Ruby and Letty, because Letty is like, forget this. Let's be radical. Let's be pioneers in this neighborhood that does not want us. I don't care. Whereas Ruby is kind of like, um, I don't think so, but I want to work at Marsha Fields. But she still goes along with it, even though they have a contentious relationship as sisters that we haven't fully gotten like the whole backstory about. She still loves her sister and she kind of trusts her sister and she sees her sister's vision and she still buys in. I would say she still moves into the house, but I, I don't think that Ruby trusts Letty at this point because they do have a history and Letty mm -hmm. has proven to be untrustworthy. She didn't show up to her mother's funeral. We found that out in the right. first and second episode that both of her siblings, Ruby and her brother Mar Marvin, um, are upset with Letty because she was given money to come to the funeral. And she used that money for something else. So I don't, and, and she's always asking Ruby for money. And this is supposedly, uh, this house is supposedly Letty's way of repaying Ruby for all of the years where she's paid um, to get 
Letty out of jail on bail mm-hmm. when she's been when Letty's been arrested for um, protesting. Um, so I'm not sure that that Ruby trusts Letty quite yet, but she wants to. When when Letty she makes this to. appeal mm-hmm. that that we can be sisters, we can start over in our relationship, we can really bond. Um, it's obvious that that's something that Ruby wants and has wanted. And so she's mm-hmm. giving Letty a chance. Yeah, I don't I don't think she fully trusts her, obviously, because of where this goes a little bit later. But I do think she was willing to try this radical idea that could very well get them killed. So if you if you're willing to put yourself in danger to move into this house given the times, given how white residents of Chicago and other cities in the north have reacted firebombing houses killing people doing all sorts of egregious acts to keep black people out of the neighborhood the fact that she's willing to even try it um i think that says a lot right and so another person who kind of gets roped into the fold um is atticus he stops by the house um once he finds out where letty has relocated to um, and it's on moving day. All of the, all of Letty's tenants are moving into the house. It's a Sunday, which is a time where the white people are all gone to church, um, which is hilarious, which means it's safe for the black people to move into the neighborhood without, um, the cops being called without any trouble. And Tick mm-hmm. shows up and we learn that it's been three weeks since George's funeral that Tick and Letty have not spoken since then. And Letty seems to be kind of, you know, disappointed or hurt um, by that. And he's coming to say goodbye. He's going back to Florida. He tried to help out with uh, Hippolyta and Diana after George's death, but Hippolyta is over him. She does not want him in uh, their house anymore. Uh, she mm-hmm. feels very distrustful of what the story is that they've been telling Hippolyta and Diana about what happened to George and Tick can't really keep up the charade much longer. He feels very guilty about it. He tried to go to his father's house and stay with his father. Um, but they get into an argument because Tick wants to find out more about the order of the Dawn and the Lodge members and what else is going on with the magic that the white people have. And Montrose is very against it. So that argument makes Tick leave before he actually gets into another physical altercation with his father. So he comes to the house um, and he says that he's leaving, but then you see a line of these uh, white neighbors, white men who have parked cars in front of their home and have put bricks on the steering wheel and tied the bricks onto the steering wheel so that there's a constant sound of the horn blowing. Um, They've got baseball bats and they're threatening uh, Letty and the other people in the house. And so Tick decides Mm -hmm. he's going to stay for a little while. Yeah. He's rudderless. Like he wants to do the right thing. And these white dudes rig their cars to just lay on the horn, which is a form of terrorism and torture that kind of Tick talks about later. Like, these are the things that we did in war, uh, noises and heat and all kind of things to disrupt people and make people feel afraid and tortured. Um, He decides that he has a purpose here. And so he wants to stay to help protect Letty because he feels some sort of um, 
you know, protection of her because of all the things that they've gone through. Right. And I think yeah, that's I mean, a very interesting point, too, about uh, what he says. This is what we did in the war. We've seen in episode two that he's still very haunted by what he did, uh, by his role as a soldier in the Korean War. Um, and I think maybe he also sees this uh, as an opportunity to make amends for that, to protect Letty, mm -hmm. you know, because he cares about her, but also to kind of deal with the deadly things that he did as a soldier in the imperialist army, like his father uh, called him. At this point, the audience knows, okay, this house is haunted and it's increasingly making its presence known. But still, Letty and her and her boarders and her roommates are not deterred. They don't care about these horns. They don't care about these white people putting up signs talking about this is a white community. And they throw a housewarming party. And they have a big old housewarming full of ruby singing, full of joy. In scenes throughout the house, we see Diana and her friends are at the party. And they're using a Ouija board. And all I can think is my mom being like, the Ouija boards are from the devil. So as soon as I saw that Ouija board, I knew something was going to go very wrong. Have you ever played with a Ouija board with black kids? No. I mean, I grew up in no. a white neighborhood. So we played Ouija not. with other white people. Like, I was the only black person. I have never <laughs> had a group Absolutely. of black kids I play Ouija. I have never even physically been in a place that had, like... Nobody had one at their house. That wasn't the thing that my friends or I had in our houses. Probably because our parents was like, no, that's from the devil. We don't do that. And nothing good happened in this scene. Um, they're asking, you know, early tween, teenage questions. Like, oh, am I going to have fun on my trip? Ouija board, nah, nope, you're not going to have fun. Um, and then the one kid gets the courage because his his voice is trembling and he's scared. Like, who am I talking to? And then it the Ouija board spells out George is dead, and Diana is admittedly pissed because you know I think part of the Ouija board is like, oh, your friends are guiding it, and then all of the other kids are like, we didn't do that, and this is why you don't fuck with Ouija boards, straight up. The other thing that was really <laughs> amazing in this housewarming scene uh, or series of scenes um, is where Ruby is singing. She's singing, is you is or is you ain't my baby. And right. here is Letty and she is dancing so seductively with this other man, some random man. We don't know who he is, but they are having a great time. And Tick has been ignoring Letty all night. And she kind of rolled her eyes the last time. He just kind of brushed past her and didn't even notice that she was wearing one of the dresses that she got from the house uh, in episode mm -hmm. two that she took with her um, and that she looks great. He's just ignoring her. So she's like, okay. So she goes out, she gets his attention. I don't know if it's intentionally or not. Cause she's, you know, her eyes are closed. She's not really looking for him, um, but she does uh, finally open her eyes and peep that, uh, Tick is looking at her and that he is kind of feeling some kind of way about her dancing so seductively mm -hmm. with this man. And she is minding her business and she's just, you know, she kind of she kind of laps it up a little bit. And then <laughs> she goes into the restroom and we see another ghost with a there's a spear through mm -hmm. his head. And he's in the shower. She doesn't notice him. But when she looks up, what she sees is uh, Tick 
coming into the bathroom behind her and they make eye contact and then it's like on and popping. Yeah, like zero to 100 real quick. Letty is bleeding and my first reaction was like, Letty's a virgin. And then she plays it off and she's kind of like, oh, I didn't know my my monthly or whatever people called it in the 50s. I didn't know my monthly, like it was time. And as a woman, <laughs> it's not a surprise, guys. It, it You know that it's coming. It was blood blood. I was like, oh my God, Letty's a virgin, which is counter to how we've been experiencing Letty, even though we've never seen her with a man or anything like that. But everything so far has told us that Letty is a woman who breaks from convention. Letty is a woman who's dressing too sexy. Cause I think when she meet when she sees Ruby again for the first time, Ruby's like, you don't have on stockings. And she's like, girls too hot for all of that. But these are things that show that Letty is not quote the typical or stereotypical woman for that time. So it's it's a little bit like, oh, my God, she spent all her time in the world being an activist, being an artist, being amongst people. But she hasn't shared herself in this way. And that's the first thing that I thought. But she played it off. And I was like, mm, girl, I don't believe you. But they get it on. And then they don't even have really a moment to discuss it because, boom, racist white people in her block are burning a cross on her lawn. And I find that scene so interesting too, because the cross burning happens right after Ruby is like, colored people need to be more like me. They need to be more hardworking. So on her hardworking lawn, there's a cross burning to show how ridiculous Ruby's mindset is. And I don't know if she makes the connection. We have yet to see if she will make that connection and kind of change her uh, way of thinking. Um, but there's really no time for that because as soon as Letty sees the cross burning, she is, she's got fire shut up in her bones. A shout out to the Holy ghost title of this episode. Exactly. And she's ready mm -hmm. to go. She grabs a baseball bat. But the thing that I love, like it's so subtle, but it's so freaking sexy and beautiful. She gives this like look to Atticus. Like that's it. Like, she don't have to say anything. She gives him a look. I think it's before she even grabs the baseball bat. And Atticus knows what to do. He gets all the bin together to get shotguns out the closet. And they go and follow her as she takes this baseball bat, goes outside, and breaks open the windows of all of these cars with the uh, bricks that are on the That's horn. Right. And she tears all of that down. And, you know, so he's got the men with the shotgun out there to protect her in case anybody tries to come and stop her from knocking the bricks off of the horns of these cars and, and shattering all the windows of these cars that have been parked out in front of their house and terrorizing them all mm -hmm. week. And as this is happening, Dorinda Clark Cole uh, of the famous Clark sisters um, gospel mm -hmm. group, her song, Take It Back, is playing while she is having this amazing uh, release and, and and taking back what the devil stole, which was her piece. But it's just so coordinated. Like that's the other thing that I loved about this. After Letty is done breaking all the windows, um, they hear the sirens coming for the police that have been called. Um, and so, and of course, the police have been called for her, for Letty for breaking in the windows, not for uh, the white neighbors who have set a cross on fire in her yard. Um, but the men all put the shotguns into Hippolyta's trunk. 
Hippolyta drives away with the weapons so that when the police come, they won't have an excuse to try and murder them. And they all put their hands up and get on their knees. They're ready for the police to come and arrest them. Like it was just perfect coordination. I mean, that's what I'm talking about. Like when they move as a community, when they move as a group, like they are protected. Um, but unfortunately, right after that, they get separated very easily and, and, and Letty's taken um, alone by the police captain. Yeah, so it's not, it's not Hippolyta, it's Ruby, which I think is interesting. Um, Ruby is the one who jumps in the car and they, they put all of the, the bats and stuff in the car. Um, Hippolyta is still on the porch because she's looking for Diana. Um, so I think this is another opportunity where um, Ruby shows that she has her sister's back, even though she doesn't quite agree <laughs> with her sister's methods. She doesn't agree with how radical her sister is. But when the shit hits the fan, like Ruby is still the one to have her back. But it leads to Letty getting arrested and they're having um, a police brutality moment, which I thought was, again, timely and timeless, unfortunately. But usually when it comes to things like police brutality on screen, we don't see it directed at women. Um, and so we have this moment where Letty's in the back of the police van this officer is taunting her and he's also giving her information about the house. Like, oh, you moved into the Winthrop house. All these black people were found dead in this house. You might want to move out. Um, and then he grabs the little strap above his head. And then the, the police van starts to throw her around in a way that is actually deadly. Like, this is how Freddie Gray in Baltimore was fatally injured a few years ago in the back of a police van. They didn't secure him. He got thrown around and that ended up taking his life. So I think it's really interesting that we have this scene where Letty is on the receiving end, a black woman is on the receiving end of this level of violence, which is something that we don't usually see. But also in this scene, we get vital information and he inadvertently gives her vital information that he thinks is going to scare her away from the house. But it only radicalizes Letty further. And, and she starts doing research. Everybody else is moving out because they're spooked by the racist white folks in the neighborhood. So they're not even spooked by the actual ghosts in the house, they are spooked by like their white neighbors who are threatening them, who took Letty on this rough ride, who burned a cross in their yard, etc. Uh, meanwhile, Letty is going further and she turns into a detective and she cracks the case about all of these missing people who've gone missing. Her house was once owned by this person named, I didn't get his first name. His name is Epstein, the doctor that was Horatio. The, the house. Yeah, Horatio Epstein is the person who owned the house previously. He was a professor um, at a university nearby and was fired from his job because he was doing illegal experiments and come to find out that the experiments that he was doing um, were on human beings. And mm -hmm. the police captain that gave Letty the rough ride and arrested her and threatened her to move out of the house uh, was the person who would kidnap these black people. So you had a baby, you had a basketball player, 
um, old woman, like all of these eight people who were kidnapped by this police captain were then given to Epstein um, to do research on. And he ended up maiming them, mutilating them and all kinds of other horrible things to them before they ended up dying. Uh, they're two different people. But Winthrop never owned this house. Winthrop was one of the original members of the Order of the Dawn. Um, he mm -hmm. was a disciple. Of, he was son of Adam with uh, Titus Braithwaite. And he actually right. stole pages from um, Titus Braithwaite uh, from the Book of Names in order to create his own spells. Um, and so right. as a result of that, he was kicked out of the Order of Adam. Um, and Epstein was a student of Winthrop's. And so when he got his house, he just named it, you know, the Winthrop House in honor of Winthrop ah, because okay. he was a student of Winthrop's. I guess he knows where uh, the stolen pages are that Winthrop uh, stole from Titus Braithwaite. They're in the house, apparently. Yeah. And he was trying to teach, or he was learn. Epstein was trying to learn the spells um, that Winthrop had learned. Um, and I think he was using those spells while he was doing these experiments because, you know, we see how, you know, the, how these people were mutilated and kind of forced together in some instances. Mm -hmm. You see a, a, a basketball player, grown man with the head of a baby. Um, so I think that some of these experiments also included some of those magic and spells um, or that he was attempting to do, but didn't actually end up working and they all ended up dying. And all of that, all of the destruction and trauma that they wrought on this particular community on Black Chicago calcified in that house. And so that leads us to Letty kind of figuring out all of these elements. Then she talks to Tick about it and he tells her like, well, at first I thought he was going to try to dismiss her. And I'm like, really? After all this you guys been through? But he's like, yo, this is what Uncle George would say. You need somebody to let the spirits free. So they get a, a woman who practices, um, uh, ancestral black religion I'm guessing something akin to Yoruba or Santeria because she calls on Mama Oya to cleanse the space so you see this goat roll up this woman and this regal outfit she slays the goat on the porch she pours out his blood she puts a uh, x on all of their heads on Tick Letty in her own head so that that gives them a seal of protection. And when they go into the sub-basement, she tells them, let's hold hands. And no matter what happens, don't let go. But unfortunately, at some point, they let go. They are feeling very relieved and they do think it's working. And when the pipes break, that's when they let go. And the poor woman, um, she gets really beat up. I believe she's a Yoruba priestess. She's wearing all yeah. white. She's calling on Mama Oya. So it seems that she is a Yoruba priestess. Then when she's not able to, you know, be the conduit for that spirit anymore, it jumps into tick. And then he's really flipping out. Well, Go while ahead. all this is happening, like the, the other thing that's happening at the same time is that three white boys from the neighborhood have broken into the house. And they are in, they have baseball bats and they are intent on causing damage and harm to um, the people inside the house. So while they're down in the basement trying to defeat this white devil um, from hell, 
The other white devils from hell are inside the house, um, but they are getting uh, met with some forces that they did not quite anticipate. So the ghosts of these eight dismembered black people um, are accosting each of the three of these white boys one by one. I think the other thing that we didn't mention though, Brittany was um, the fact that not only did all the tenants move out, Ruby moved out too, because Ruby Mm -hmm. has learned by accident because Letty let it slip that Letty received an inheritance from their mother. And that's how she was able to buy the house. And so Ruby is very upset because, you know, this is another lie that Letty has told her. And Ruby just feels very bamboozled um, and, and hurt, of course, that her mother uh, left only Letty an inheritance. And mm-hmm. um, so it just goes back to the issues that they have. Again, um, Ruby is also reminding Letty that she's just a selfish person. She's a selfish, self-centered person that everybody that she brought into the house um, wasn't to help, you know, the black community at large. She was just giving her friends a place to stay. And that, you know, Letty's a fraud. She hits her with that line. She was like, I thought you were a fuck up, but I realized you were fucked up. Like, ooh, she hit her with the gut punch with that one. We just thought you had like personal problems, but now I realize that like you are the problem. And that really cuts Letty to the quick. Right. So now we're back into the basement. Letty is now on her own. Um, The Yoruba priestess has been knocked out um, by being possessed by this uh, white devil Epstein. Um, And the the Epstein has now jumped from the Yoruba priestess into Tick. And so now Tick is charging at Letty, um, you know, telling her to get out of his house. And Letty has done her research. She knows the names of every single person in her house who was murdered by Epstein and dismembered by Epstein. And so she starts calling on them. She's saying, I know you're not dead yet. You can still fight. And she calls them all back into this room, calling their names and just such power in in calling somebody by their name. I recognize you. Your humanity was dismissed by Epstein. You were murdered. You were demoralized. You were tortured. Um, But I see you. I know that you are still human. I know that there is still uh, your life mattered and that there is something that you still have left to do, which is why you're still in this house. She calls them all together and they come out of the shadows and stand next to her and hold hands with her. And they begin chanting as well, Lusatio. And they're all chanting in a circle around um, Epstein, who is embodied in Tick. And they're, and as they are chanting together in community, each one of these people, they start to heal. So people who had their arms removed um, start to grow back. People whose mouths were removed start to grow back. The man who had a, a forced baby head on top of his neck, he starts to grow back into his original self. So all of these Uh, harms that had happened to each member of this group, they all start to be healed. Even Letty. Letty had been dead. Letty um, had come back to life and felt like a ghost in her own 
life, in her own world. Um, she didn't feel, she couldn't feel anything, but you see all of the emotion that's draining down her face and she's bawling her eyes out. You see that she has come back to life too. She is not dead. She can still fight too. And it's just such a powerful scene. And Shirley Caesar is playing uh, over this scene, uh, Satan, we're going to tear your kingdom down. And that's, I think, when I lost it, honestly, um, because it showed, you know, there's just so much power when we come together and that the forces that we're fighting are evil. We're not being punished because there's something wrong with black people because we are some kind of cursed people. That's not the situation. We are living in a cursed world and there's evil all around us, but we have power um, in the living and also in our ancestors that we can call on, that we can get back our power and join our power together to defeat every enemy that comes against us. And I just found that so powerful. That scene is super powerful. And I think that the juxtaposition of both of those things was intentional and also extremely powerful and also extremely, you know, instructive about how we can honor our traditions that we may be disconnected from, especially black people in America, but also not be afraid of them and not dismiss things as like, oh, talk, I, like I've seen some people on Twitter being like, oh, these these spirits are y'all calling on the ancestors. That's just the devil. Like it's not the devil. These are things that can be instructive and these are things that can be helpful. And these are things that can build community across the diaspora. And that's how we defeat white devils in our community, in our government, and in our world. This episode is really about uh, the way that religion and spirituality are used to both hinder and further Black liberation. And so you also see these white Christians, again, they've gone to church on Sunday while um, the Black people are moving in um, because they're good Christians. They're good white Christians. But you have these white Christians who are burning a cross in the yard of their black neighbors to terrorize them, not even making the connection, like no irony at all between the fact that Jesus, their Lord and savior was crucified on the same exact cross. So they use this cross as a symbol around their neck to remind them of the sacrifice of Jesus, but do not consider black people and oppressed people and the people that they oppress specifically um, with these same tools of destruction um, to be on the side of God. They see us as people who need to be subjugated and brought into their version of the light. But you have a Black liberation theologist, um, the amazing uh, James H. Cohn, um, who has this really great quote from this uh, fantastic book that he wrote, um, The Cross and the Lynching Tree. And he says, the cross is a paradoxical religious symbol because it inverts the world's value system with the news that hope comes by way of defeat, that suffering and death do not have the last word, and that the last shall be first and the first last. So white supremacists don't understand what that cross represents, but this episode is showing um, exactly what James Cone has said about what the cross does. All of these oppressed people, they come out on top here. I think that is an extremely good place to lead into our very special guest for this episode, Tony Goldwyn. Tony plays Samuel Braithwaite. You saw him disintegrate and die 
in episode two. Um, but he also gives some very good answers about what our white brothers and sisters can take away from the show and whether or not we will be seeing Samuel again. So let's get into it. If you love Scandal, then you know him as President Fitzgerald Grant. If you hate him in Ghost, you know him as Carl Brunner. Now he's Samuel Braithwaite in Lovecraft Country. Rest in pieces, Sam. It's Tony Goldwyn. Welcome to Black Girl Watching. Great, nice to talk to you. We're just gonna just get right into it. I mean, this is a show that has monsters, it has racism, Jim Crow, all that stuff. Uh, what was the pitch that you got um, that made you wanna sign on to this show? Well, I just, um, I, you know, got the script and thought it was incredibly well written and uh, read this crazy role they wanted me to do. And um, it's just so imaginative. And, and what's so fun about it is that it takes, you know, the, the multiple kind of genres that it goes back and forth and sort of wraps it up in social commentary. So it's, it's um, you know, really entertaining, but I just thought it was super smart. Did you happen to read the book, um, Lovecraft Country, before uh, or while you were preparing for the role at all? I did, yeah. Mm -hmm. what, what did you think of um, the book? Because it's, it's actually pretty different than the show. Yeah, I enjoyed the book. But what I thought was really amazing was uh, you know, Misha Green's adaptation of it, because I thought she just took it to a whole other level. It is amazing. Um, when you saw the title for episode two, um, Whitey's on the Moon, which is the episode that we meet you and your character. And as Brooke said, rest in pieces. Um, <laughs> what was your what was your reaction to the title of the episode? And were you familiar with the poem? Or was that something that you had to get familiar with after the fact? No, no, no. I was familiar with the poem. So, you know, when I read that, I was like, oh, wow, where's this going to go? <laughs> um yeah, I was, I was, uh, that, it, you know, it's such a stunning poem and so famous. Uh, it, it really grabbed my interest when I started reading. I love that. Um, and so you also love playing bad guys. I mean, you're, you've been around since the 80s. I mean, so there you've had countless roles, but I feel like the ones where we really, really remember those characters, they're, they're always, unfortunately, the bad guys in the show. Um, I don't know. There's a little bit of debate about whether Grant um, was a bad guy or not. Uh, depends on how you feel about Liv. But, um, you know, definitely in Ghost. So how did you try to humanize Samuel Braithwaite, who is, like you said, I mean, he's definitely doing some uh, kooky things, to say the least. Um, so he didn't feel like a cartoon villain. Yeah, that's always the challenge, playing awful people, right? I mean, you know, you... Um, it's, it's, I find it always super interesting to get, to really see the, the, the world through the lens of somebody who I may find completely reprehensible. And, um, you know, he's a guy, I, I think, who views himself as, um, not only an aristocrat, but, uh, someone who is, I think he truly sees himself as superior, not just to other races, but to, Everybody, you know, he feels that he's earned his, you know, his, his, his throne in a way. And uh, he's intellectually arrogant and uh, he's very, you know, subscribes to a kind of master race, you know, 
view of the world. And I think, uh, you know, so I just, I found that really interesting to get into it. And, and, um, you know, unfortunately it's a mindset. Obviously he's a sort of operatic overstatement of a, you know, it's so outrageous the, the, the world that Misha created, but you know, the way that guy thinks is, um, you know, there are a lot of people who, 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 you know, who sort of camouflage their racism and their white supremacy and, in you know, in, in fancy clothes that other people might not see. And they certainly don't own up to it. So, uh, yeah, I just find it, uh, it's always disturbing, but fascinating to kind of crawl inside someone's head like that. We, um, we spoke to Courtney B. Vance last week for episode two of our podcast. And one of the things that he mentioned was that in addition to being super entertaining, um, to being scary, because again, monsters, um, this show is, can serve as a teaching tool for people who aren't familiar with these parts of American history. Um, did you learn anything new while working on this project or was this kind of stuff that you came in already knowing about? Uh, I would say it was, you know, most of the sort of things that it uncovered, I was pretty familiar with. Um, but mm-hmm. what I really loved about the, um, I think it's true in the book and obviously in, in the, in the script, you know, we sort of, we have this, um, you know, we misteach history <laughs> in this country, and and we sort of teach that uh, you know racism fundamentally existed, you know, post Reconstruction in the Jim Crow South, and um, don't talk a lot or teach much about redlining and other forms of institutionalized racism and economic racism that are just you know a part of the fabric of of uh, are this American society and sort of set to put the, you know, Samuel Braithwaite's, you know, uh, world in New England, I thought was really uh, interesting because, and, and, and smart because, uh, you know, we, we sort of like to look at New England as a sort of bastion of, of progressive thinking or certainly, you know, enlightened, more enlightened thinking, even if, you know, if we think, people can be snobbish or sort of quietly bigoted, whatever, you know, that I thought was really an interesting choice. Absolutely. What was really interesting to me about um, episode two and the three, both of these episodes show the role of religion and spirituality in promoting black liberation and hindering it as well. So, you know, Samuel uses the Bible and that's his kind of guide for his classist and white supremacist organization to reclaim their rightful place. Um, You know, as Samuel thinks he's Adam, you know, these members are sons of Adam and they're trying to get back to the Garden of Eden um, and just kind of leave everybody else behind. Um, So did you Mm -hmm. see um, any parallels between like the sons of Adam and like current movements um, that we're kind of seeing today that, um, you know, see black lives as disposable? Oh, for sure. I mean, I think that, um, you know, uh, bigotry in all of its forms and throughout history has used, has used religion as a, as a, a cloak and a justification, you know, including the KKK. But it's, it's always been a, you know, an incredibly useful tool. Um, and, um, so the, the, uh, 
sort of secret society that Samuel runs and is a part of and views that he's the rightful heir of is, um, is you could replicate that a thousand times uh, throughout history. Kind of along those same lines, given that the Braithwaites and the Sons of Adam do feel very familiar to other types of white supremacist groups or people that we see in real life, do you think there are any sort of lessons um, for our white brothers and sisters in the story of the Braithwaites um, that they can kind of pull from? Yeah, I mean, I think for, for all of us, it's like looking um, at things that we perceive to be benign or um, stories we tell ourselves that, you know, we romanticize the past or tradition or things that have become um, comfortable, comforting, uh, you know, um, quote-unquote normal, and that in, in a lot of ways these sort of systems of thought or the stories that have been woven, uh, the mythologies that we've, self-mythologizing, I guess we could, you could say, that we've done as a people, um, you know, are, are blind to a lot of the reality uh, of, you know, of what that really stands for, you know. So, um, and, and in, in so many cases, it's either whitewashing or um, in a more insidious way, um, you know, promoting racism. In addition to being about racism, like, you, like you've been discussing, um, it's still, as Courtney kept reminding us, a monster show, right? Um, and there's been some discussion about what organ was removed during last week's episode. I said the liver, Brooke said the kidney. Um, can you just clarify that for us right quick? Yeah, well, what I think it was was there was a piece, he had a, he had a piece of his liver cut out that ah, he then said right. to... That he then had, you know, that he fed to all of his acolytes um, because they were going to eat a piece of, the, you know, the son of Adam. Uh, yeah, Courtney's right. It was uh, that's really more part of the monster movie, I think. What's so much fun about the show, I think, you know, is it's like it, at the end of the day, is you know, it's not about, um, you know, like so much like well, I, you know, Jordan. Peel being one of the producers that I was so right on because like you know Jordan's work has been so much about you know taking a piece of just raw fun entertainment and then also um, you know putting a some social commentary a heavy dose of social commentary in that so Misha's done the same thing yeah and it, it just really revealed so much about who Samuel Braithwaite was um, because, you know, he explicitly calls himself Adam when, you know, he's questioned by Atticus, who's like, oh, you think you're God? He's like, no, I'm Adam. I'm the first man. I'm the original. I'm the prototype, you know? Um, but it also seems like in this scene, like to take a piece of your body and to pass it around for everybody to eat, that he also thinks that he's Jesus as well, because, you know, this is a bit of like communion, you know, take this body that was broken for you uh, in that kind of way. So what what was his goal with having everybody eat um, a piece of, of of his body? Well, my feeling about it is it was a complete power play. Like 
he, you know, one of his, I think, what struck me as like one of his um, badges of, you know, uh, 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 his claims to being, um, having earned what he's, you know, uh, striving for, is that he was willing to have himself cut open, a piece of his liver cut out of him, and get sewn back up. I mean, he sees himself as being like, I, no one else has the, you know, the, the stones to do that. And none of you, I'm better than all of you. And now you're going to, you know, he doesn't, they don't realize until they're halfway through what they've done, what they've eaten. So to me, it's a, it's a, it's a, a, a dominance move, you know, that he can, that it's an example of him saying, I'm tougher and smarter and, you know, better than any of you. And now I've now fed you a piece of my organ. And then, you know, you could say he's also, there's a sort of communion in that, but, um, you know, so I, I, you know, I, the, the, the parallel to Jesus. Yeah. Maybe that he would, he would claim that too, but he sort of, there's something about Samuel Braithwaite to me that was also quite transactional in kind of a almost like Trumpian way. <laughs> you know, he's, He's not sentimental about things. I'm not certain how spiritual Samuel Braithwaite is. You know, he's very much coming at it from a pragmatic, scientific, um, alchemical, uh, you know, uh, place where, you know, he's done the work, he's, he's cultivated the knowledge, and through this uh, crossroads of spirituality and um, magic and science, you know, he's going to uh, solve this riddle, you know, practice this code. And on that point about Trump <laughs> that you made, mm -hmm. um, you know, you played President Fitzgerald Grant for many, many years. Um, mm -hmm. What do you think Fitz would say to the nation right now? Fitz would, uh, yeah, I mean, I'd like to believe that Fitz would have, um, you know, to been the third candidate, <laughs> would have jumped back in the race to, uh, you know, he was a Republican, but um, he, he uh, well, first of all, he was the most sort of progressive Republican you can ever imagine. But for all of his failings, uh, I think he would have had, you know, he would have uh, come out pretty strong against the Donald. Let's hope. I mean, he had, he had some ups and downs, but I think his policies were were pretty helpful, <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah, I, I think so too. And um, uh, I, I would like to believe that uh, Tits and Olivia would have teamed up to take, to, to take Trump down. And that would, we would probably need it, especially right now. But um, <laughs> at the end of episode two, we see that Samuel has broken into pieces it's a, another biblical reference um a lot of the sons of adams are turned to stone and then they are dusted away kind of like you know the story about lot and his wife running away from gomorrah but the second episode also set up the ability for people to come back to life right and this interview is airing after episode three. So we know that not all of the Braithwaites are dead. Christina pops up at the end of episode three to remind us like, oh no, we're still here. Is this 
So was episode two the last we see of Samuel? Like I can't tell you that. I know. We could try. I can't reveal that. That would be a major spoiler alert. He did not say no, ladies and gentlemen. He did not say it was the last time we'll see him. IMDB also may have some spoilers because you are listed uh, for two episodes as Titus Braithwaite. Oh, I see. Oh, okay. Well, I don't know. I, I didn't. I'd have to check IMDb, so I can't. I can't comment on that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we'll have to check back in with you later in the season. Yeah. Are you also watching along with the rest of us and maybe checking out what people are saying about it? No, I want. Here's what I, what I wanted to do was um, I kind of wanted to binge watch it, so I was okay. saving it up, and I also was traveling, so I wasn't. Um, didn't sort of have access to HBO, and I thought I'd, I'd watch it sort of in a, in a bingey fashion. Mm-hmm. And I never kind of read comments about stuff like that, just because I've, I've learned that can be a, if you're a, I don't know, that can be a bit of a rabbit hole, <laughs> you know. So I, I mean, unless I'm tweeting with people, like interacting with people about something, right. I tend not to go back and look at all of the punditry on Twitter. It can be a lot. It can certainly be a lot. Um, Especially if people like or loathe your character, which I'm sure you're used to that type of fan engagement. So yeah. How does that work for you? I mean, like do people to this day still like shake their fist at you and call you Carl? Not not so much. That that fits really uh, sort of changed that paradigm, even though people, you know, have their issues with um, Fitzgerald Grant. That to some degree sort of subsumed uh, the Carl hatred, I guess, <laughs> in the in our popular culture, you know. And scandal was such a huge part of the live tweeting phenomenon that we are continuing to experience today. So we have seen Journey. Um, I think she made Journey and the writers um, for sure um, tweeting on a pretty uh, regular basis every Sunday. Um, live tweeting the show and like we have Carrie Washington and the whole cast of Scandal to thank for for that so I mean you've definitely added some something interesting uh for sure to the culture cool I mean and it's so much fun to do um so um yeah we it was that was really a big part of our whole adventure and and, uh, and I kind of you know even even though it was um, a big commitment to do it every, we did it, you know, pretty much every Thursday for two hours because we had the East Coast and the West Coast. Um, but we loved it. So I'm glad that other people have, uh, have, uh, you know, caught the bug to do that. Well, we know that we, uh, have to wrap up soon. And we, before we do that, we just want to again say thank you for coming on and talking to us about Lovecraft Country and a little bit about Scandal. Um, so we appreciate it. Um, but before I let you go, just kind of what is your or is there a moment um, that kind of sticks out from working on this show that feels really memorable or fun um, or interesting to you? The thing that I really uh, w- that excited me so much is such an amazing group of actors. You know, that was just really, Courtney and I are really old friends and we worked together like when we were both in college. We were in a Shakespeare company in Boston together and and. Uh, you know, as you know, Courtney was on Scandal and we've worked together over the years and that was a great reunion. And like Michael K. Williams is just such a genius. I've, I had not met Michael and to get to, you know, work with him even only briefly. And I knew Journey. I actually met Journey because, you know, she, she was, um, I was interested in directing. And one time when I was directing Scandal, she shadowed me and we 
got to know each other. And so it's, it, the, the people involved, I thought were just, and I didn't, you know, uh, I didn't know Jonathan Majors at all. I think, you know, and I, that guy's a movie star. So it's always fun to work with someone and go, Holy crap, this guy, who is this guy? He's amazing. Um, and so good. That's always really exciting for me to, to be in a company of actors that are just so, so great on all levels. Well, you certainly um, also brought your A-game on the show, and I'm crossing my fingers. I think that everybody's coming back from the dead now that uh, <laughs> now that Letty had a miraculous recovery. So I'm, I'm keeping my eyes open to see if my theories play out, just like death doesn't really mean a lot on this show. And you, of course, are not telling us, but we really appreciate you coming on to talk to Brooke and I. Really fun talking to you. Tony's definitely been doing a reading and I appreciate him for it because so many people haven't. I appreciate Tony for not only knowing a lot of the things going in, but be willing to talk about it and discuss it um, and be a voice for perhaps white folks who need to have this conversation with white folks. But before we go, there are some things that we still have questions about. Brooke, where are your questions, questions about where the season goes from here, about the episode? What do you got? Like I was saying last episode, I know that Christina is the demon that we also need to be looking out for as well. She, she is the Targaryen of white feminism. Wow, that's how you're going to do my girl, Danny. Okay. She is definitely out here causing um, trouble. We see that she is, again, the mastermind behind Letty getting this house. It was not, in fact, uh, the mom who left an inheritance to Letty and caused the big uh, breakup in the relationship between Letty and Ruby. Um, this was all Christina's doing. She hired a black man to pretend to be a realtor and sell her this house. Um, so, and she's, she's, she wants the power. She, she laid out for Tick who, uh, who figured it out, but also did not share that information with Letty. Like you would think at mm -hmm. this point of the game, he would trust Letty and and let her in, but we can see he's still kind of standoffish and just like a man, unable to right. to to let Letty in and be a full partner with him in this adventure. But I think he feels like he's protecting her. He goes to accost Christina and tries to kill this heifer, and he can't kill her. He has the blood. He's the son of the sons, but he also doesn't have the training. So my one of my questions is, in addition to like, will Tick and Letty have a conversation about all the stuff he learned from Christina and what that's going to be about? Um, how is Tick going to, how or if or when, because I'm hoping in all of this, it's not that like Montrose suspects white folks just got magic on top of power, like power in everyday world. And black folks are just subjected to that. I hope where we're going is that tick and company are able to harness some of this power that he gets from his bloodline and from his legacy and is able to defeat even more white devils. We're trying to figure out whether Hannah who is Tick's ancestor, the, the enslaved woman who escaped from Samuel Braithwaite and burned his house down. We're trying to see if he's the, if, if Hannah is the one that truly has all the power um, and that maybe Samuel 
stole that power from Hannah. So it's that's why Tick's blood is more potent. It's not because mm. he has Titus's blood, but because he has Hannah's blood. And so at Dr. Jessica and Jones says, I think that old boy talking about Titus Braithwaite did have some kind of magic or knowledge natural or stolen, who knows, but the power to open the portal and the power to gain immortality was with Hannah. So we'll have to see uh, throughout the series if um, Dr. Jones's theory is correct, but tell us your theories. Um, tweet us at Black Girl Watching, hashtag Black Girl Watching, and we'll shout you out on the next episode. Before we leave, I also want to give a shout out to uh, another listener on Twitter, at Soft June Breeze. She said, after listening to Lovecraft Country Radio, which is an official HBO podcast, and Black Girl Watching about the episode, I have a lot more clarity. Also, the latter podcast, meaning ours, this one right here, has a great interview with Courtney B. Vance that's definitely worth a listen. So shout out to Courtney for joining us last week. Shout out to Tony for joining us this week. And be sure to subscribe and stay tuned because we're going to be having interviews and you you don't want to miss them because we give y'all the inside the scoop scoop always always with the inside scoop thank y'all so much for joining us today and we'll see you next week in lovecraft country black girl out rest in peace chadwick boseman